A few years ago, there was a book written titled Games People Play. It was a book that focused on our attempts to manipulate each other and the games that we play to do so. Recently, I was with my granddaughter, Janie, and I don't recall what she was doing exactly, but I said to her, Janie, you're a little manipulator. And she said, well, what is that? And I said, it's getting people to do what you want them to do. And she smiled at me and she said, yeah, I manipulate Dad. <laughs> and I said, yes, you do, and probably one day you'll manipulate a husband. But we all want to manipulate someone else. Well, after that, there was another book that was written titled Games Christians Play. And the focus of that book was the games that we play in the church to manipulate other people. One of the games that was mentioned is the why don't they do something game. Why don't they do something about the parking? Why don't they do something about the nursery? Why don't they do something about the finances? And so it is an attempt to manipulate others to do what I am not willing to do. Another game that he mentioned in that book was the new fangle gimmicks game. And everything is dismissed in this game as being simply, that's just another new fangled gimmick. And then another game that is mentioned was the age and experience game that is normally played by those who've been in the church all their life. You know, those who were born in the choir loft, they got saved when they were two, called to preach when they were three, given the gift of discernment when they were four. And anything that is not within their experience is dismissed as being invalid. I'll tell you a little story, but I was thinking about this morning. I had not been here a long time, and Steve Phillips came, and he began to change the music ministry, introducing a orchestra, a few choruses. I remember that because I still have scars, Steve. <laughs> but on Monday, my office looked like Baskin-Robbins. There would be people out there with numbers waiting to come in and talk with me. All good spirits, of course, but they nevertheless wanted to come in and talk with me. I remember one time that a person came in to talk with me about the music and, and said, You need to understand that we are a traditional church and we like traditional music. And I said, What tradition? And they said, Well, what do you mean? I said, Well, there are a lot of traditions. Which tradition do you like? Well, you know that's not what I mean. I said, Well, I'll tell you what let's do. Why don't we go back to the first century tradition and we'll have church like they did in the New Testament. We won't have any music at all, and I'll preach for three hours. I said, no, we don't want that. I said, well, I didn't think you did. <laughs> but there are all these games we play to try to manipulate someone else. And today we continue our study in the book of James as he deals with some of this. So take your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 4, beginning in verse number 11, where we left off last time. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, James begins in this text by talking about the game of judging others in verse number 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Now, this game appears to be innocent and caring. In other words, the things that I am saying, I am saying to you or I am saying about you because I have genuine concern for you. I have told you before when Eric married Emily, and she is a southern girl, she told us, you can say anything you want in the south about another person as long as you follow it with bless her heart. For instance, you can say, boy, she sure struggles with her weight. Bless her heart. So we pretend that we are concerned about others when we say these things. But why do we do it? Why do we criticize other people? Why do we judge other people? Why do we condemn other people? Well, the truth is we do it sometimes because it boosts our self-image. I mean, it strokes my ego. If I am criticizing someone else, it makes me feel better about myself. And then there are some who do it simply because they enjoy doing it. Their motto is, if you can't say something good, let's hear it. Barclay wrote, there are few activities in which the average person finds more delight than this. To tell and listen to the slanderous story, especially about some distinguished person, it is for the most people a fascinating Activity. Now, is that not the reason that tabloids are so popular? Now, I'm not saying anything about anybody here, but you've noticed people standing there reading those tabloids. Isn't that the reason that they are so popular? Because we love to hear the dirt on somebody else. I mean, we, there are some people who simply enjoy that. Another reason that some people are critical of others is because it impresses their friend. If I criticize this person, then I must be superior to that person. Then the truth is, too, there are some people who are critical of others because they have been hurt and they want to hurt someone. They have been hurt and they want someone else to hurt as well. Well, James warns us about this game. He said that this is a serious game. Look at verse number 11 again. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. The word speak against that is used there literally means to criticize, judge, gossip, backbite, condemn, grumble. And the word usually means to talk about someone when they are not present. To speak about someone behind their back. What he wants you to understand, though, as you look at it, is that we have to know that when we are criticizing a brother or a sister, that we are criticizing God's own child. That's what James is saying. When we are critical of another brother or sister in Christ, he says, then we are slandering God's own child. Now, we know it's wrong. That's the reason we try to disguise it when we do it, right? 
Maybe I'll not say this, but stop me if I shouldn't say this, but James says this is destructive. And that's what James is saying. He is saying that when we are critical of a brother or sister in Christ, that we are destroying, we are guilty of destroying one of God's children. He goes on there in verse number 11b, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So James says that when we criticize another brother or sister in Christ, that we are slandering a child of God and we also are slandering the law of God. Well, how does that work? How does that work? Well, it's like this. If a brother or sister has done something wrong or they have behaved improperly, and then we condemn them, we become guilty of hypocrisy because we have broken a greater law, which is the royal law, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So it is condemned. That's what James is saying here. It is condemned. Why? Let me give you three reasons that uh, that uh, being critical of other Christians and so forth is condemned. First of all, it is playing God. We are playing God. You remember the, the movie Rudy? If you do, you remember that the priest, there's something that the priest said that was, uh, that, that I have not forgotten, but he says, there are two things I know. One, there is a God. Two, I'm not him. You, you see, when we are critical of another person, we are playing God, and the fact is, we are not qualified to judge another. Because to accurately judge another person, I have to know all the facts, and I don't know all the facts. To accurately judge another person, then I have to know the motive, and I don't know another person's motive. So it is condemned, first of all, because when we put ourselves in the position of judging, then we are playing God. And then secondly, we ignore our own failures while we point out the failures of someone else, which is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 3. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So Jesus said... How is it, and the picture is a humorous picture, that I get up real close to you and I'm looking in your eye to try to get a little speck out while I have a log that's sticking out of my eye? When we are judging other people, I'm ignoring my own inadequacies because I am focusing on yours. Thirdly, it opposes love. When we are judging other people, when we are critical of other people, then we are opposing love, and the Bible says that we are to love others as Christ loved us. So James, first of all, talks about judging others, and he says that we do so because it causes us to feel superior, but it is condemned. The Scripture condemns it. Now then, after he talks about others judging others being condemned, he talks about us judging ourselves, and we even misjudge ourselves. Sometimes I talk with people and they will preface what they are about to say with, well, if I know my heart. Folks, let me tell you something. You don't know your heart. The Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Implying that we don't know our heart. 
The truth of the matter is, is that we don't even know our own hearts. But when we establish ourselves as judge in our lives, what we are trying to do is to establish ourselves as the sole authority of my life. That I judge myself because I'm in control of my life. I judge myself because I am in charge of my life. And that in part was the sin of Satan when he fell in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. But you, and this is a reference to Lucifer, it is believed. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. Now then, if that is a reference to Lucifer, he is judging himself and saying, I am worthy to sit on the throne of God. He judged himself to say that I belong in the position that belongs only to God. So he was establishing himself then as the authority of his life. That was the sin of the prodigal. He rejected the authority of the Father to establish his own authority over his life. And folks, that's what we do when we establish ourselves as judge of ourselves. It's to establish myself as the authority in my life. I have rights, and I am the authority of my life, which is reflected in Henley's Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pole, the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's what it means to get in a position where I judge myself. I establish myself as the authority of my life. And do you know what happens? We misjudge ourselves. When I become the measurement by which I judge myself, then I misjudge myself. Verse number 13, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and, and make a profit. You see, when we judge ourselves, we, we establish ourselves as the sole authority of our life. And we misjudge ourselves because we think we are in control of when. Today or tomorrow. We think that we control the whims of life. I talk with people oftentimes and talk to them about their relationship to the Lord and that they, uh, and I encourage them to give their heart to Christ, to give themselves to Christ. And, and then many times they will say, well, you know, I'm not ready right now, but whenever I'm, whenever I'm ready uh, down the road or something, then I'm, I'm going to do that. In other words, I'm in control of the whim of my life. Seneca said, how foolish it is for a man to make plans for his life when not even tomorrow is in his control. Folks, we are not in control of tomorrow. That's the reason the Bible says, if you're here without Jesus Christ, let me say to you, that's the reason the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. All we have is today. Right now, this is all we have. We are not guaranteed any time after this moment. This is what the Lord has given to us. But when we establish ourselves as the authority of life, then I think I'm in the control of when. I also think I'm in the control of where. Such and such a city. I'm going to control when I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to control where I'm going to do it. 
before I came to First Baptist Church, I was pastor in Oklahoma City. And for about a year and a half, I had thought that I was going to go back home to Texas. And so there were a number of churches that talked with me and so forth. But as we prayed it through, God wasn't in it. Even though I really wanted to go back home and I thought that I was going to go back home, God wasn't in it. There was one church that came, and I met with the committee and talked with them, I don't know, a number of times. And, and uh, so things were progressing within that uh, conversation. Finally, they asked me uh, to come, and I was scheduled to come to their church on Thursday. And uh, if we still felt good, then I was going to go and be their pastor. It was on Tuesday night, prior to that Thursday that I was supposed to go, my phone rang, and it was Bob Devonport who was the chairman of the pastor search committee here. And he said, we want to talk with you about coming to First Baptist Church Columbia as pastor. Now, understand, I had never been to South Carolina. I did not know one person in South Carolina. And I wanted to go to Texas. But I knew in my heart, and I cannot explain it to you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But I knew in my heart that this was of God. To the degree that I called the chairman of the pastor search committee at the church in Texas and said, I need to tell you what has happened because I would be dishonest with you if I did not. I'm not going to come down on Thursday because there is another church that has called me and I believe in my heart. That's what God wants me to do. Folks, when we establish ourselves as authority in our life, We think we're in control of when we're going to do things. We're not. We think we're in control of where I'm going to be. We're not. We think we're in control of what we're going to do, make a profit. We are not. It is God who's in control for the child of God. So I do not establish myself as the authority of my life, but God must be the authority of my life. You are not to be the authority of your life. God is to be the authority of your life. And so he condemns that when we establish ourselves as authority in verse number 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. In other words, it's foolish to think that we can plan our lives apart from God. That is the height of arrogance. To think that I can plan my life apart from God. That's the reason Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.19, But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And then in 1 Corinthians 16.7, For I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. That's what James was saying there. Life is complex. And we are affected by what others do. You can have your business plan as to how your business is going to grow and prosper and so forth. But then gasoline prices go up. You have no control over that. There are people in the Middle East who set that. You have your plans for retirement. You have your plans for business. But then the government can, can change the tax structure. I keep hearing these candidates running for president talking about all the programs they're going to introduce. We're going to have all of these three things. And I keep thinking, well, who's going to pay? Where are they going to get the money for that? As if I didn't know. 
The government doesn't have any money. They have your money. But, but the thing is, see, they take your money from you to do what they want to do. The point that I'm making is that life is complex and we are affected by what others do. Life is uncertain. He says there in verse 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and, and then vanish away. We, we can't accurately know what tomorrow is. You know, we're, we're as confused as Columbus. When he left Spain, he didn't know where he was going. He came to the new world. He didn't know where he was. And he went back to report to Spain. He didn't know where he had been. And we're as confused as he is about the future. You can't predict your health. Sometimes we, we think that, that, that we can predict our health. We can. My dad died at 43 years old. He was healthy as far as we knew. We can't totally predict our job. We may or may not have a job in six months. Life is brief. He says that you're just a vapor, appears for a little while and vanishes away. James says our life is like the morning fog. It comes out and the sun appears and, and we're gone. It is brief. And yet we are arrogant enough to believe that we are in charge. Look at verse number 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Barclay said the future is not within the hands of men and no man can arrogantly claim that he has power to decide it. The point is, is that James says that we are not to judge others because we're not qualified. As a matter of fact, we are not even qualified to judge ourselves, to establish ourselves as the authority of our lives. So what do we do? Verse number 17. Therefore, referring back to all that he said, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. Folks, I'm to spend my time and you're to spend your time not in judging others, but knowing and doing the will of God. William Barclay wrote, The true Christian way is not to be terrorized into fear and paralyzed in action by the uncertainty of the future, but to commit the future and all our plans into the hands of God. Now, how do I know God's will? He said, I, I am to know the will of God. You are to know the will of God. How do we know the will of God? Well, he says in chapter number one, when we were going through chapter number one, that we go through trials in life. And what do they do? They produce endurance in us that brings us to maturity. So God then uses the trials in life that we might know him. In chapter number two, he says we know his will through Scripture. So as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God, we study the Word of God, then we are able to discern the will of God. In chapter number 3, he says that he gives to us wisdom. If I spend my time in the Word of God, then I end up with the wisdom of God. And the Bible says, if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth liberally and upbraideth not. And then in chapter number 4, he says that if I have the wisdom of God, then I know that I am not capable to be the authority of my life nor am I capable to be your judge. So I am not capable to be your judge, and I am not capable of being the authority of my life, but I am to know the will of God. You know, the problem is, for most of us, it's that we do know the will of God. Now, we always want to change the subject and say, well, yeah, but what about? You know, what about this over here? What, well, what about those things that you do know? There's a lot about God's will that you do know. So the Scripture says then that I am to know the will of God that I might what? Do the will of God. Look at verse number 15. Instead, you ought to say, 
If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or do that. If we know his will, we are to do it. And that's what the book of James is all about. It is about maturing in the faith. It's about growing up in Christ. It is about becoming adults spiritually. Then when I mature in the faith, I am not so nearly concerned about tearing someone else down, but building someone else up. If I am mature, I am not nearly so interested in hurting someone else, but in helping someone else. If I am mature in the faith, then I'm to be a person who loves, because Jesus did. Now let me conclude. Let me just run through this real quickly. In verse number 13, he teaches us to make our plans with God. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. He says, you're not in control of when, you're not in control of where, you're not in control of what. So he says then that we are to make our plans with God. And I would especially say to you graduates, you young people... I was looking at you when I was seated up here early, and I thought, my goodness, what incredible potential. What God can do with your life. And he'll give you the greatest life you cannot imagine. My, I, 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 I could not tell you what a wonderful life it is to live for Christ. Such tremendous potential you have. Make your plans with God. I mean, it's not all about business. It's not all about what everybody else does. It's what does God want to do with you? What does he want to do with you? Make your plans with God. That's what James is saying here. He says, secondly, recognize life's uncertainties. In verse number 14, he said, your vapor appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Life is uncertain. None of us has a guarantee of tomorrow. In verse number 16, he says, Be humble, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. We, we are not, we're humble people, not proud people. So be humble. Understanding that the blessings of life are from God. The grace of life is from God. So we have every reason to be humble, not arrogant. And he says, to do otherwise is sin, in verse 17, therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, when we know the will of God and we do not do the will of God, he says that's sin. To know his will and not do it is sin. So let me just ask you very quickly for your consideration. What does God want you to do today? We're going to extend an invitation And say to you that if you're here without Jesus Christ, it is God's will that you trust Him. It's not His will that any perish, but that all come to repentance. So it's it's God's will for you to come to know Jesus. What is God saying to you? Is He calling some of you to be preachers of the gospel or missionaries or to serve Him in that capacity? What will you say to Him? Is He speaking to you about becoming a, a member of this church, a part of this family? What is... All I'm saying is whatever God tells you to do, do. Whatever God tells you to do, do it today. Our gracious Father and God, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of serving you. And thank you, Father, that you call us to be your children. 
You've provided a sacrifice to, to forgive us, to save us. Lord, thank you for allowing us to serve you. And Father, I pray your blessings upon this invitation time that those to whom you're speaking will do what they know to be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.